Well, it seems to me that the, the term spin doctor is something the press has manufactured to, to really deal with the problem the press has. This is Herb Schmertz, the ultimate spin doctor we met in our last episode. He's complaining about his favorite target, the press. The press, by and large, would like to control the agenda and the terms of reference of all debates, and they'd like to decide what information they're going to deliver and what information they're not going to deliver. If you haven't listened to episode four, go back and do that. This is part two of our Herb Schmertz episode, and you need to listen to part one. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled, season three, The Mad Men of Climate Denial. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. It seems almost unimaginable now, but before Herb Schmertz, it wasn't really okay for corporate executives to be assholes to journalists. The prevailing idea was that if you wanted the media to cover you positively, you had to be nice to journalists. You had to build a friendly relationship with them. This was one of Ivy Lee's big rules, and it didn't change for almost 50 years because it had mostly worked. It had tamped down on muckraking and given companies a way in to the press. But then came the 60s and 70s. Vietnam and Watergate. And suddenly everyone was suspicious of those in power again. And the perfect spin doctor for such a time was not a genteel Southerner who could smooth talk a story like Ivy Lee. It was a sharp litigator with an even sharper tongue, Herb Schmertz. He'd been a labor lawyer for years before getting into PR, so he wasn't afraid of a little confrontation. And he quickly found it to be an effective tool when dealing with the press, particularly at a time when Americans were really pissed at oil companies over ongoing shortages. And Mobil, as the second largest oil company at the time, was a prime target. You tell that goddamn governor he's going to police this goddamn gasoline situation. I will not take the blame for this thing. I will not take the... Crap and the harassment from these customers. This is the owner of a mobile station in New Jersey who has had it with people getting pissed off at him for his station never having enough gas. Now let him police it or stop selling gas. Anger and bewilderment are growing as more and more Americans cope with gasoline lines and empty pumps. If he didn't like how mobile was depicted in a story, Schmertz would accuse the journalist or the TV channel or the newspaper of being biased, unfair, not giving both sides of the story. And because they weren't really used to publicists or company spokespeople doing this, in most cases, they would overcorrect in his favor. 
In a lot of ways, Schmertz is the guy who brought false equivalence into modern journalism. False equivalence is the idea that every view has an equally valid opposing view. Climate change coverage was riddled with this crap for years. Every climate story had to include a legit scientist and the head of some right-wing think tank who thought climate change was a hoax. That way, it was balanced. Newspapers finally ditched this approach in the past decade, but cable news has just come around in the last couple years. In 2018, for example, on Meet the Press's Big Climate episode, Chuck Todd had on a spokesperson from the American Enterprise Institute, a known industry-funded front group that regularly pushes climate science denial. So you had climate scientists and policy experts, and then this lady. The problem for many is that they perceive this as an agenda that is much more about corporate and much more about law and much more about the kind of governance that America has and much less about climate. So from the standpoint of those who have doubts about this, and I I don't think we can have any doubts that there is climate change, whether it's anthropogenic, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I, I look at this as a citizen and I see it so I understand it. Equating this woman's opinion with the actual research of climate scientists is a perfect example of false equivalence. And it's something Schmertz really pushed for. He watched for every single mention of mobile in the news. And if it was critical at all, he went after the journalist and accused them of bias. Here he is explaining that strategy to Charlie Rose a few years after he'd left mobile and started his own PR firm. You made your reputation attacking the press. (laughs) Well, uh, in part. Uh, Schmertz believed so much in the strategy of attacking the press that he wrote an entire book about it. But it wasn't just because he liked confrontation. In terms of attacking them, it was it was a tactic to get them to present my point of view or my. This client. is when you were representing. Yeah, Marvel, when I was or you were senior Marvel. vice president, or something. right? Uh, and it was it was a tactic to get them to present Mobile's point of view by attacking them on on the accuracy and reliability. Well, you coverage. had a public relations problem because oil companies had oh, a public sure. relations problem. Absolutely, I mean it was the worst. It didn't always work, of course. There's this hilarious passage in Schmertz's book, Goodbye to the Low Profile, The Art of Creative Confrontation, about a meeting that he demanded with the Wall Street Journal editors in 1984. He planned to cover a long list of examples of how they'd been unfair to mobile. But he gets to just the first bullet point, and halfway through, the executive editor, a guy named Frederick Taylor, says, Everything you're saying is bullshit. A small win for journalism. But then Schmertz retaliates. He pulls all advertising from the journal. He takes them off his press release list. He refuses to let anyone at Mobile speak to reporters there. He won't even give them access to basic numbers like earnings reports. Word spreads throughout the media. By 1986, Taylor's retired and Mobile's working with the Wall Street Journal again. Schmertz was fiery and petty that way. But for all his fighting with journalists, he also saw their value. In 1970, Schmertz convinced Mobile to underwrite a new program on PBS. Good evening. 
I'm Alistair Cook. I found a transcript of an interview with Schmertz from 1991. It was part of the research for a book about masterpiece theater. And there's this whole part where Schmertz talks about how Alistair Cook, the guy you just heard there, the host of Masterpiece, was embarrassed to be associated with Mobile. Schmertz says, quote, I think that he did not feel comfortable being associated with Mobile, and he went to great lengths to avoid being associated beyond what was necessary for the show. He didn't want to appear to be flacking for an oil company. But it's clear that Schmertz is kind of hurt by this. He respected this guy. He talks about him as having style and class. And then he talks about why he always wanted journalists hosting the shows that Mobile produce. He says, quote, I think actors don't really have as much credibility as journalists when they're talking about these kinds of shows. What's also clear in that interview is that Schmertz was very hands-on with his work at PBS. He had script approval, casting approval, and was one of, if not the, key decision-maker on which shows ran during Masterpiece. In fact, it was Schmertz who pushed them to air Upstairs Downstairs, which the PBS team thought was too, quote-unquote, commercial. Mobile CEO Raleigh Warner was actually the first one to recommend the show to Schmertz. It went on to be Masterpiece's biggest hit. By the 1980s, Mobile was spending $3 million a year on PBS programming, and Schmertz was one of the most important men in British television. In a weird way, you probably have him to thank for Downton Abbey. Somehow he knew that the people he wanted to reach, the influencers, would fall hard for British TV. He even specifically told the writers not to try to write for an American audience to keep it British. In 1982, Mobile ran a survey and found that 31% of upscale Americans chose Mobile Gas. Second place by a long shot was Exxon at 16%. It was all part of what Schmertz called affinity of purpose marketing. This is why Schmertz kept sticking with PBS. It reached the precise audience he was after. That and it was cheap. He talked a lot about what a bargain it was, which is kind of a bummer for PBS, who at the time was taking so much money from oil companies, not just Mobile, but also Exxon, Texaco, and Chevron, that people were regularly referring to it as the petroleum broadcasting system. The oil companies, though, they were all getting a big reputational boost, and that was the entire point. There are those that argue that this practice amounts to pseudo-philanthropy in which corporations and the public are under a false impression that something is actually given, being given away for humanitarian purposes. That's Schmertz on a panel about corporate philanthropy and whether it actually exists. Spoiler alert, companies only spend money on stuff that helps their bottom line. I don't know that I'd be that severe, but I, I, I will tell you that um, this is one of the fastest growing areas of tie-in between corporate giving uh, and marketing. And it shows a, um, a sophistication and awareness on the part of corporations that they can tie their business interests to other interests uh, in the cultural and educational and philanthropic area, and yet be able to show to whomever is interested, whether it be shareholders or uh, whatever, that, um, that there is a bottom line payout for the, for the giver. When Schmertz wanted to combine the magic of his New York Times advertorials with his new taste for TV, he was thwarted by a now-forgotten piece of policy that we talked about in Season 1, the Fairness Doctrine. 
It was an FCC policy that basically required balance, not just in coverage, but advertising too. So if you ran an ad for a liquor company, for example, you'd have to give some free space to mothers against drunk driving, that sort of thing. Schmertz made multiple different mobile advertorials, and he tried to get them placed on broadcast TV, at first for free and then as paid advertising. But they all turned him down, citing the fairness doctrine. So after a lot of public complaining and accusing them of bias and censorship, he made his own network, the Mobile Showcase Network. It only produced shows occasionally, but Schmertz would find ones he liked, buy them, get them produced, and then offer them to the 55 or so stations in his network. They were regular TV shows, totally just entertainment, but they had these little mobile showcase ads before them that would show mobile oil men being good guys or talking about how great energy was, like this one. Because I am the foreigner in another man's country. Every time I look in the mirror, I say, who is that? Yep, that's old Vern Porter. He didn't have to look over his shoulder to anybody because he's given it everything he's got every day. Vern Porter and other mobile people working around the world to find and produce oil strive to build deeper understanding between our culture and others. Watch for another mobile showcase presentation. Schmertz was great at finding ways around regulations on what or how mobile could advertise. And when he couldn't get around them, he worked to change them. Here's environmental sociologist Bob Brule. And mobile was one of the leading corporations to fight for that legal right. There was a a pretty big effort to get a Supreme Court ruling that basically supported corporate speech and the right of corporations to do advertising, not just product advertising, but of their positions. That case was in 1978, First National Bank of Boston versus Bilotti. Way before Mitt Romney called corporations people, this case determined their personhood. And I don't think people really appreciate how big of a deal that was in shifting the rules of, of, of speech in the public space. That now suddenly corporations could use their budgets, uh, which are enormously, you know, larger than individuals, to, to advocate their position in the public space. And as a, as a sociologist, I would say that what this did was it allowed for a systematic distortion of the public space, is that it gives uh, corporations basically a loudspeaker to amplify their voice above everybody else's. Bellotti is a very big deal, I think bigger than, than Citizens United. I mean, Citizens United, you know, opened up the whole campaign finance area, but Bellotti opened up the whole public space. Uh, all of the media, to to these kind of large-scale corporate propaganda efforts. You can see the results of that case everywhere today. In the oil company's First Amendment defense of climate denial, in the absolute carpet bombing of fossil fuel ads right now, in the total lack of regulation of advertising on social media, or in podcasts for that matter. We're living in the world Herb Schmerz dreamed of, the one he helped to build. Next time, we'll bring you the story not of one man, but of a husband and wife, a power couple that Dr. Brule once described to me as the, quote, intellectual parents of climate denial. Come back for that. They're still alive and well, and you'll never guess what they're up to today. 
Drilled is part of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. The show is reported, written, and produced by me, Amy Westervelt. Julia Ritchie is our editor. Our managing producer is Katie Ross. She also created this season's incredible artwork. Sound design, scoring, and mixing by B. Beeman. Rika Murthy is our editorial advisor. Naomi Lachance is our fact checker. Special thanks to Richard Wiles and to our First Amendment attorney, James Wheaton, and the First Amendment Project. Drilled is made possible in part by a generous grant from the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development. We appreciate their support. You can find Drilled on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave us a rating or review. It really helps the show. And you can follow us on Twitter now at We Are Drilled and visit our new website, drillednews.com, for climate accountability reporting, newsletters, and behind-the-scenes stories from this season. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.